John chapter 4, verse 1. It begins saying, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. So what we're going to lead into, this is kind of just the intro of, of how Jesus gets into this, this place where many of you probably know about. You've heard it many times before, this woman at the well passage, how beautiful it is, what it means to us. It's really the prototype of so much we understand about God's heart toward women and how they have been. They've been stepped on um, by the, the very people that are supposed to protect them. And that, unfortunately, is, is men. But, of course... When God steps into the picture, he shows, he shows us how a woman ought to be esteemed. And um, this initial, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard, we know so much about the Pharisees. There's, there's so much that we know they did historically. Very pious men. Um, they, they preserved the word. They're things that we, we have to be thankful for of them. You know, they, they were known for tithing, but doing publicly, for praying publicly, giving from their abundance, right? Uh, the things that made them look good at times was actually things that uh, were evil in God's sight. That actually wasn't something that God esteemed highly, but they, they pursued because they were looking for the esteem of men, not the esteem that comes from the true God. Jesus recognizing, of course, he's, he's, uh, he's annoyed them, um, we have two accounts of Jesus cleansing the temple, and one's earlier in John chapter 2. And where Jesus is at the moment, uh, upon hearing that the Pharisees are now aware that he has made more disciples than John, is he is in Judea. Uh, Jerusalem's in Judea, and he's a bit too close to home for the, for the, uh, the religious elite. And uh, Jesus, knowing it's not quite his time, uh, and of course, much of his, his ministry does in fact occur in Galilee in that region, he departs from Jerusalem. Sorry, my heart just leapt in my chest as my wife walked into the room. Um, I'm blessed by that. Of course, her phone is calling me. It's silent. It's, it's, it was silent. So anyway, anyway, we're going to get back to this. I, I, I hope you guys will forgive me. Um, Jesus, he's departing Judea. But there is much... You know, we learn um, we learn so much about the Pharisees from the Scripture. What happens with Christ and his encounter with religious leaders is they recognize, they even come to him. It's recorded in other Gospels where they come to Jesus and they, they flatter him with truths about Jesus, about how, how he walks in integrity. He, he isn't partial to man. He speaks the word of God in truth. This is something that's actually honorable about Christ, but they're not even saying it in order to edify him in a godly way. It is manipulation. They use it as manipulation. Uh, talking about this with the men um, says that in, in Proverbs 28 says, a man that uses flattery casts a net for his neighbor's feet. And, and it's simply, they're looking to trap him. They're looking to catch him. They, they reckon, of course, they have popularity. They have position. As soon as that's threatened, regardless of what they say they stand for, they're living in the flesh, and immediately they're willing to compromise. They um, they confer. Uh, they gather to the Herodians, and they confer with them how they might take Jesus and kill him. 
You know, we know that very pious Jewish men hated the Herodians. They they hate Herod. They hate the power that Rome has given him. And that's simply because it's I mean, there's a lot of factors that play into it. They hate the poll tax. They hate the fact of um, the legitimate blasphemous coinage that's used in the gathering of the census every single year. There's there's much that these men legitimately have against the Romans. Of course, then at the same time, Jesus tells us to submit to governing authorities and pay a poll tax, which, just on side note, funds his own execution. You know, we you, sometimes we think, uh, you know, I have, I have a legitimate reason because I don't, I mean, don't get me wrong. Bla- uh, excuse me. Abortion is horrific and it should not be funded by our government. But the only perfect human being and the, the worst crime that was ever committed was funded by a tax that the man who was executed commanded to give. We ought to submit to our government for the sake of our Lord Jesus. Anyway, back to this. The, um, the Herodians, right? The Pharisees conferring with the Herodians how they would kill him early in the gospel. He's doing certain, he's, he's healing people on the Sabbath and it's ticking people off, right? It's ticking religious leaders off. These, these guys are willing to, you know, like we, they say they have a hatred, a, a, legitimately, a legitimate godly hatred of these, these Romans, these people who support the Romans, support the Roman rule. Um, and yet, when they find a common enemy and a godly man, they're seriously willing to throw that away to murder him, to sin against God. It shows you where their heart's at, right? It, it's, it's esteem of men. They're, they're seeking esteem of men. What's beautiful about this, though, is Jesus left Judea and departed again to Galilee. In verse 4, we read, but he needed to go through Samaria, right? And it's often pointed out that this was probably much more a spiritual need than a geographical need. It wasn't it wasn't so much that he couldn't travel through Pernia and go out around Samaria. Yeah, it would make it longer and it'd be unnecessary. But what we understand about the, the religious institution of the day is that um, rabbis, teachers, Men of esteem, people that, that were being watched, not all the common Jews, but especially the ones that were being watched, would make a point of going out around Samaria, right? For you guys, it'd be this way. Going out around Samaria up to, in order to travel from Judea to Galilee. And that was simply because there's a long history with the Samaritans. The, uh, the Assyrian captivity comes. Um, of course, Assyria is leaving people in the land to populate it so it doesn't all go to waste, so that the, uh, the 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 control they have of Israel doesn't result in the land becoming completely useless. But what they end up finding out is what what they end up encountering. Excuse me, is um, attack of, of wild animals. Um, there's there's famines. There's things like this. So they actually send priests back into the land to to teach the people how to worship this geographical god Yahweh. Help, help instruct the ones that Assyria has placed into the land um, to know how they can please the, the ge- I say geographical, because they looked at, at, at Yahweh as just being the God over a certain area, not the God of creation. And so in the priests coming back and the Jews intermingling with um, Gentiles, it, it created what 
um, I sh for lack of a better word, purebred Jews referred to as half-breeds, right? And that is the Samaritans. They were looked at as, well, they were looked at as less than human. They were, they were looked at as um, not worthy to be part of the Israelite family. There's a lot of animosity. There's, a lot of, there's other things that go into it. But religious men would either go all the way out around Samaria um, in their traveling, or they would go through a series of spiritual cleansing, baptisms, in order to cleanse themselves of the dust of the land because it was defiled. Um, Jesus comes to this, and he's not scared to walk through Samaria. It actually it says he's needed. It is needed that Jesus go through Samaria. And we actually learn in uh, the next chapter, in John chapter 5, it says in verse 19, Jesus answered, and this is, I'm not giving context, but I'm just giving a principle. I'm using this, this verse to teach us a principle that we should recognize. Jesus answered and said to them, and that's the, the religious men around him, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. Jesus is completely aware of the Father's will. Jesus is functioning around totally fleshly, sinful human beings like you and me, right? I'll put myself first, like me and you, okay? Like us. And yet, he doesn't have bro at any broken fellowship with God. He knows what God's will is. He knows how to walk it out. He knows how to honor him. Every setting, every mundane little thing, the day-to-day -day life, right? I, what I see my father doing, I always do it. He's got spiritual lenses on. I, again, figuratively, you know, you guys know what I'm talking about. He's, he's aware of the supernatural existence around him. That surrounds him, okay? So the question is, are, are we, am I, am I too focused? Am I too focused on myself to recognize the supernatural reality that's going on around me? You know, where are my where are my spiritual lenses? I'm asking you guys, where are yours? Right? Do do you say, you might say, but you don't know, you know, you don't know how you don't realize how compromised I am. You don't recognize the sin that's in my life. You don't you 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 you're not aware of how many times I've had opportunity and I've passed it up. You know, but honestly, I probably don't. You know, but you don't know about the opportunities I've passed up. And one thing I want to challenge you with is the fact I, I want to ask you about that first encounter with Christ, that first time you tasted his love, right? That first time he pulled on your heartstrings, your salvation, where were you then? Because I Paul tells us, Paul tells us where we were when Jesus died for us. Romans chapter five, verse ten says, If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through death of, through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. You know, if the power that is God Himself was working in your circumstances when you had no desire to please Him, it, how much more now that you've recognized your need? Because you, what He wants, He wants acknowledgement and confession. God, God will work with a broken, broken and contrite spirit. He'll work with a man who recognizes, I need God. I need you, Father. Right? The cry. The cry. Not of the two-year-old in the nursery. I'm sorry. The, the cry of the broken man, the broken woman, the, the person who recognizes, I, you know, 
I'm sure you guys can all remember where you were the first time you really experienced God for the first time, because I know I can. I've said it. I've told, I've told it countless times, and it's every time. It's to the glory of God. I wasn't seeking God. I, I felt him seeking me. I, I sensed the presence, right? And I threw myself on God, and I, I asked Jesus to help me know God, not knowing who Jesus was. I didn't. had a conversation with Matt. I said, I invited my sister to a Bible study. She goes, you know, I would come, but my mother-in-law told me that Matt, Matt teaches that Jesus is God. And I literally responded, no, he doesn't. He teaches that Jesus is the son of God. And she's like, well, he thinks that means God. I said, no, it doesn't. So I go back and have a conversation with Matt. I say, I say this. I say, my sister said this, and you think Jesus is God. And Matt's like, he is God. And I'm like, what? You know, so basically I struggled through the Trinity. And I, struggled, I struggled through that doctrine. I was a modalist for a long time to my own shame. But anyway, he opens up John 1. He opens up Colossians. He shows me these scriptures. And I'm just like, well, it says it, so I believe it. And that's what it came down to, right? Um, but, uh, I, you know, God was working in my circumstance then. And what does Romans, what does Romans 8 say? You guys know this. And we know, we know, we're confident of this thing. We know this. We have assurance based on the things that we've seen in the past, based on the things that are recorded for us in the Old Testament. Romans 8, uh, verses, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Right? He, we know this. It's, it's needed that Jesus would walk into this woman's life at this time where she's been broken by the, disillusion, the disillusionment, being disillusioned through her circumstances. Uh, of course, I'm getting ahead of myself. We haven't read it, but most of you know the context of the story of the woman at the well, right? She's, she's not found satisfaction in marriage. She's not found satisfaction in men. Of course, she's still, it was her weakness and her sinful strength at the same time. The issue is she still pursued a man, but she was so disillusioned over men that she's like, I'm not going to do it God's way, right? You've been married five times, and you're right. The man you live with now, you're not even married to. Like, how much how much of a confrontation is that? We, we praise God ultimately for her response. But really, it was needed. Your circumstances, the, the sin that your circumstances produce in your life, that's needed. That's needed so God can point out in you what ought to be broken so that he can work. Because the issue is you're never going to perfect yourself. The only thing that's perfected is a humble heart. Because it, it is God who lifts us up. It's, it's God's mighty hand that raises up out of the mire. Right? This, thank God, this story is all about Jesus. I don't have to worry about this story being about me. You know, as, as awesome as the accolades, the accomplishments that Jesus can work through us, even though... We get to partake in them. None of us are going to be standing on the throne with Christ in heaven receiving praise. We all get to worship him. We all get to throw down our crowns at his feet. Right? That's what this story is about him. And and the thing is, the sooner, right? Maybe, maybe you're slow to learn or slow to recognize. I know I am. And and even, even as I recognize this as a spiritual truth, it's ideal that I, I recognize it in every circumstance as I go through life. It still it it takes a while to click, right? In, in a certain given circumstance, 
the, the thing is, the sooner you recognize it, the sooner you recognize that you bringing glory to God is going to result in your fulfillment, the, the, you know, the sooner, the easier it's going to be for you to just let go. Because Jesus is he's going to promise this woman satisfaction. He's going to promise this woman fulfillment. Right? What is it you're thirsting after? You're thirsting whatever, whatever the thing might be. Ultimately, it's peace and fulfillment. And that's what Jesus promises. It's fulfillment. He's saying, I'm if you knew who the man was that asked you for water, you would have given, you know, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. And then she, you don't even have a bucket. But you know, his, his words are spirit. But what we know about Jesus is that ultimately. He promises fulfillment. He's going to bring it. We'll talk more about it as we as we go back to the passage. But one one last thing I want to say about this issue of knowing that all things are working together for the good of those who love God. It is God who's working those things together, right? You can fret about the fact that things aren't going the way you want them to. You can you can get upset. You can get frustrated. You can get angry. You can lose control. But that's not going to do anything. You, the, the truth is, life stinks, and you don't have control. But you do have an access into the throne room of the God that does. And you can cast your cares on him because he cares about you, right? And that's what we're called to do. And uh, anyway, it's, it's needed that Jesus would go this way at this time. The same way it was needed that you recognized in the pit of your in your pig swap, right, in your mire, that you were broken and that it was sin that broke you, because it's the acknowledgement of sin and the trust in Jesus Christ for salvation that begins that process. Um, sorry, we lost connection for a second, but I think it's back, so um, it's recording me saying all this anyway. Uh, he needed to go through Samaria. And again, we talked about Samaria a little bit. Verse 5 says, So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. And guys, these are some privy, pretty big names, right? Some heavy hitters in uh, the Jewish mindset. And we've already talked about how Jews have essentially disowned this land, this area of Samaria based on the people who live there, right? Although that there's so much history attached to Jacob's well, right? Well, I can't say there's so much history, but there's so much history attached to Jacob. So by default, you know, the well would have much attached to it also. I'm not sure we know too much about Jacob's well from the Old Testament, but we do know a lot about Jacob. And honestly, that should be humbling to us and to the Jews, especially to the Jews of the time, because if you just take 30 seconds to consider the character of Jacob in the Old Testament, the 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 compromise, the failures, the deceit, right? The 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 um, the timidity, like how he was sending everyone ahead of him in his camp to meet his brother before he would end up going, right? And and going back, crossing back over the river. Jabbok or whatever one it was, excuse me if I got that wrong, but, and then wrestling with God, right? And finally saying, you know, I saw God face to face and I, and I lived and, and, and of course God setting his hip out of place and recognizing like, look, it's your pride 
that, that keeps that keeps you at arm's length from me. And I'm summarizing a lot of things. Initially, what I'm saying is Jacob had so much failure, and we all recognize that. We, we saw the strife that Jacob had, the issues with all the wives and, and, ha- and having favoritism amongst his children. Jacob was a man um, of a lot of compromise. But we also we know good things about Jacob. There, there are things about Jacob to be commended. Ultimately, what it comes down to, though, is if you can recognize, you know, you, you make reference to the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, you know, that, that speaks something very loud to the Jewish community. But what it should remind us is it's not the conduct of these men that's going to cause God to use the nation of Israel to bring his salvation to the world. It is his promise. It's simply his promise. It's his faithfulness, right? That should cause us to to not be partial to people. It should cause us to not look at, I mean, I pray to God none of us in this room are, but certainly recognize how sinful it is to look at a human based on their heritage and call them a half-breed. Right? Jesus is making a point. He's, it's needed for him to go through Samaria. And uh, into this area where the Jews have kind of, has kind of been cast off by the Jews due to the fact that the Samaritans populate it. It says, beginning now again in verse 6, Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour, noontime, right? This isn't morning. This isn't 6 a.m. This is the sixth hour of the day since it began at the coming up of the rising of the sun. And um, it says Jesus, therefore, being wearied, right? That's, that's astonishing, you know, to think about. John was the one who, who opened his gospel with that prologue, that, that magnificent prologue. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And, and in him all things were created. Without him nothing was created that was created. In him was Life and that life was the light of all men. That light shines in the darkness, and no darkness can overcome it, can comprehend it. It's it can't apprehend, it can't grasp it, it can't touch it, guys. This light came into the world. The word was made manifest and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Right? This is that word, and it's standing here. He's wearied. And what's astonishing is he comes out of this circumstance with this woman at the well. And he's not weird. He's not looking for food to overcome being wearied. He's actually. We learn in verse eight that the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, which I think is well, another point I'll touch on in a moment. I think it's quite astonishing that the disciples actually left for any period of time. Um, but what we learn in thirty-two is when they offer him something to eat, Jesus responds and says, "I have food that you, you know not of." And of course, they, who gave him food? Right? This food's to do the will of the Father. Right? You guys have all experienced this. I know, I know this room. Right? I've, I've seen your faces. I'm certain that you've been in circumstances where you've been, you've been built up. You've received a strength that's supernatural. You've, you've done things where all of a sudden, you know, you thought you were hungry. You're looking for that hamburger or you know that pile of coleslaw and, and, and mashed potatoes, and then you get an, you get an, an opportunity to witness. And explain to someone what Jesus Christ has done in your life and the freedom that he's brought. All of a sudden, an hour and a half goes by. And you're like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever done. I can't even believe I'm part of this. 
Like, who am I? Who am I, God? Why do I get to open my mouth? If only they knew what a wretch I am. But you're so, this story, again, this story is about you, right? Jesus is doing the will of his father. And the will of his father is to come and seek the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And of course, now all men are coming to Jesus to be baptized, right? Jesus departs from that for this woman in Samaria. He's got a heart for this woman sitting at a well in Samaria. And he leaves that the, the ministry that's exalted in the eyes of men to do what he knows his father's will is. And that is, um, that's really the, you know, give this woman a testimony that she goes from there and tells everybody about what's happened. We read of Philip in Acts 8 going into Samaria and preaching Christ, and there's a revival. Is this woman's testimony what primed that? I, I imagine it must have had some impact, right? They probably, anyway. I'm not going to get too much into the way it's all speculation as far as how how people would have received anything she had to say, really. But we know she was faithful to tell. We know that she was faithful to go. She was faithful to open her mouth. And those, again, that's that's where Jesus is getting the sustenance from doing. I mean, he's truly man, truly God, yet truly man, right? And so he is, in fact, wearied, but then at the same time, he's sustained. He's sustained by the power of God that comes through faithfulness, that comes through obedience, comes through fellowship. These things are spiritual, right? Spiritually understood. And that's, I think, a challenge for all of us because we got to remember these things personally and apply them personally. You're not going to be able to tell an unbeliever, like, oh, just get saved. And you know what? I'm not going to say, you wouldn't say these things. We wouldn't actually say these things to each other. But you wouldn't say, you don't have to eat anymore. That's not the point I'm making. But if you try to explain to them, like, oh, there's these experiences where, you know, you're just, you don't even need, you don't even feel like you need food. You just, you just talk about it. Hours go by. Deep, rich fellowship. You're brought to tears. All you want to do is you want to exalt his name. You just want to sing praise. You just want to hear more about him. You want to, you want to call him wonderful. You want to call him counselor. You know he's a good father. He's come to give you life. And they're going to look at you like you have three. That's actually a phrase I got from Matt. They're going to look at you like you have three heads, right? It's it, They're not going to understand it. But you experience these things, right? And this is something that the, 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 uh, the disciples, they have to wait for, the falling of the Holy Spirit, the ministering in this fashion, right, continuously, the opportunity to do that thing. Jesus is, he's wearied. It's noontime. And, um, Verse 7 says, a woman of Samaria came to drink, excuse me, came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. So there's a woman, right? She's not a girl. She's a woman. We learn a lot about her, about her circumstances, about what she's like. And she's from Samaria. She's already got, in the world's eyes, she's got two strikes against her. She's a Samaritan. You know, she's uh, half-breed, worthless, right? And she's a woman. She's looked down on by, by what is considered true religion. It's, it's diabolical. You guys, you know, you guys consider, I'm sure you've heard it before, but I'm going to remind you. Genesis 1, day 1, day 1 through 6 in creation, God looks on everything. It is good. It is good. It is good. 
at the end of day five, it says it is good. And then at the end of day six, he says it is good. But we actually, we get a deeper dive in Genesis two into what happened during day six and God creating man. And there was actually, a, there was a, there was a, um, there was a time, there was an occurrence. That's the word I'm looking for. There was an occurrence where, where God stopped and said, it is not good. And it was because he looked at man and he saw he was alone. So he created a helper for him that was comparable to him, right? And you guys have heard it. Don't let it be cliche. God didn't take it. He didn't take anything out of man's brain. He didn't take anything out of his foot. He took it, took it out of his side. He took a rib or maybe even his entire side. He fashioned woman, right, to be, to be equal with him, to co-reign. And, and man was to cherish woman, right? And it wasn't until... God made the woman for Adam that he brought Eve. He said, it is very good at the end of day six. There was a crown, right? There was a crown creation. And that was, that was man's creation. That was God's, excuse me, God's creation of man. But that jewel on the top of that crown was woman. It wasn't very good until God created woman for man. And, and of course, it wasn't simply the woman that made man very good. It was how the woman would compliment the man and bring him into worship and, and fellowship with God. And, and that was what God saw as good. And God saw that it was needed, right, for man. Again, we're going through this theme of being needed, what is needed. It was good. It was needed that man should be alone. Anyway, this woman, right, and uh, forgive me for saying it like that. I, it's just I'm trying to emphasize the fact that she, she even, she kind of plays into it when she says, what are, you know, why, why are you a man, a Jewish man, right? Talking to me, a Samaritan woman. But so it's a, it's a Samaritan woman, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink, right? So now you got to consider the contrast because we've already kind of talked about it. Um, it the, the last time we see Jesus having a conversation in the Gospel of John, I'm sure he did have other conversations. That's not what I'm saying. But the last, the last recorded conversation of Jesus in the Gospel of John is with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, what does it say of Nicodemus? You guys, you know much. I mean, there's a lot. Nicodemus is he's the ruler of the Jews. He's the teacher of all Israel, right? So Nicodemus, he's known, he's known, and he has a good standing amongst Jewish people. He's a man. He's, um, he's. He's at the center of the religious world. He's upright. He's moral. And forgive me again for emphasizing it. And I'm only emphasizing it because Jews would. But he is a man, right? And that, for whatever reason, gives him a step up above this Samaritan woman. Unfortunately, you know, I, you know, it's Josh Lawrence spoke a couple of Fridays ago. Um, he said something that was, it was kind of profound to me when he said it. Um, yeah, he, he said something, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he said something like, you know, God would prefer that you weren't a drug addict before you surrender your life to Christ, but he's still going to accept you. And he, and he's, and of course I really am paraphrasing. I just remember him saying, God would prefer that you weren't a drug addict. It's, it, there's nothing beneficial about being a drug addict. It gives you a testimony. And of course, at the same time, you can grow in grace. And Jesus says, the one who's been forgiven much will love much. There's, there is that. There's recognizing where you came from. And sometimes, you know, it's, 
it's not needed us for us to be um, to be ex drug addicts in order to love much. I'm not even implying that, but it is the person who realizes how much they've been forgiven that causes them to love much. And all of us can recognize that, whether we've ever even touched a drink of alcohol, right? We can recognize that. But for this woman, she is known for being sexually immoral. She is known for the number of husbands she's had. She is. It actually makes no reference of her children. Um, but she is known for living with a man that she's not currently married to. And what we understand about the culture is that women actually used this time, um, this task of, of gathering water, and they would go together. They would do it in the cool of the morning, and it was a time where they would get together. It was a, it was a time where they would um, get to catch up. They get to talk. There's no Facebook, right? So that's how you catch up. That's how you, you learn the, the town talk. Well, that's not when she's there because she's certainly an outcast, and uh, that's not what Jesus is. He's not interested and everyone who has a good standing in town. He's, he's come to seek and save those who are lost, right? Jesus didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. And so he's giving her an opportunity now. He says, give me a drink. He says this to the Samaritan woman. And of course, at the same time, there's this, it's, it's incredible to see the ranks at which Jesus is going, is willing to go and, and talk and have a, have a conversation, right? Because he, he pays no homage to, to Nicodemus for, um, being, um, he, he respects Nicodemus's rank. I'm not trying to say he doesn't, but he's not partial to him due to his rank. Okay. He, he salutes the rank. He doesn't, he doesn't, you know, bend the knee to, to the person, but he does, he pays homage to the rank the way, uh, a godly person would. And that's incredible. It's humbling to think that God would do that. But here he's giving her that offer. It's that the opportunity actually to reject him, give me a drink right? Everyone, everyone has something to offer Jesus. And I'm not saying you need to, that he needs you to do something. But what I'm saying is you have something to offer Jesus and it's your heart. It's surrender. It's, it's absolute surrender. It's you, you can have this thing, right? She's going to have to, she's gonna have to wrestle through other things first before she gets to that point where she's rejoicing with over who she's speaking to. But Jesus is giving you the opportunity to reject him. There is that opportunity. But you do you read about God isn't isn't calloused to a human rejecting him. He it breaks his heart. He he has no joy in the death of the wicked. He takes no pleasure in it. Right? You read in Matthew 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, how long how have longed to gather your children together? as a hen would gather her chicks under her wings, but you would not, right? You weren't willing. It, God weeps. God weeps over his rejection in, in, in a human heart, but he still gives you the opportunity to accept or reject. This is the, her opportunity. She doesn't reject right away. She's, she thinks she knows men, right? We're gonna, we're, we'll read that and I'll, I think I'll, no, actually, Verse 8 is good. I like this. He says to her, give me a drink. Verse 8 says, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And honestly, I think a lot of us could pass over that. But I think that actually, it's not so much, it's not just the fact that Jesus passed through Samaria in order to have this interaction. 
it was he wanted this to be intimate, right? You guys read in uh, Psalm 139, a beautiful psalm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read through it. You don't have to turn to it. Um, but Psalm 139 says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down, my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. For there's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. David, David rejoicing that God takes notice of him in, in a way that he knows him so intimately. He knows everything about him so intimately. He goes on. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take, my, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines in the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. It's not, there's not sorrow that he can't hide from God. Don't be confused about that. Again, he's rejoicing that God's presence and his vision is everywhere. He, he, it permeates all. He's rejoicing over, again, this intimacy of God's presence. Continues, it says, For you formed me in my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully. You wrought me in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. In your book, and in your book, they are all written. They all were written. The days fashioned for me when, as yet, there were none of them. So again, he's rejoicing in the intimacy of God's touch. On his, on his physical person. Actually, I say touch, like the touch, right? That the, the fact that he's physically intimately involved with his physical person. It goes on. I love this. I'm sorry if I'm losing you guys, but I, I hope you'll just, David again is just rejoicing over and over again about who God is. He says in 17, uh, verse 17, how precious also are, the thought, are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them, his thoughts toward him. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Rejoicing in the intimacy of God's thoughts. This infinite, infinite being having such intimate thoughts for such a pitiful human, right? And, and again, it strikes me when it, where it says, when I awake, I am still with you. Sometimes I wake up and I think, wow, you know, that was a terrible dream. Like, I have some of the weirdest dreams. Like, they make no sense. And they're horrifying. And I wake up and I'm like, oh, thank God you're with me. You know what I mean? And I find sometimes I'm, I feel like I feel like I've lost control over my thoughts. A lot of the time I don't know where they've come from because they're so out of left field. But I still find myself repenting just for simply being sinful. Right? I know it's part of my fallen nature. I, at, maybe it's just a safeguard thing. I wrestle with, wow, did I think that or was that just placed there? But anyway, moving on. I wake up astonished that God is with me sometimes. Verse 19 says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count 
them my enemies. And so the wicked aren't simply, um, they aren't the ones who sin, right? They're not, they're not wicked simply because they sin, but rather they're the ones who allow, you know, they're, they're the ones who allow their sin to harden them against God and cause them to hate him. Because we all sin, right? We're aware of that. But it's, it's these ones who, who harden themselves against God. And, and finally, this psalm ends in all this intimacy and, and the rejoicing in the fact that David's God knows him so well. It ends with, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Right? The conclusion to the rejoicing here at the end of this psalm, to this intimate, this infinite God's intimacy with lowly humans, right, is David recognizes that it's better for him to acknowledge he's better off that God knows the depths of his depravity so that he can flee from them than it would be to cling to them. Because how scary is it to think to actually say, God, know me. You guys know the thoughts you have. Like, I'm not talking about anyone specifically, but I kind of am. You know what I mean? I don't know the thoughts you have, but you know. And, and you know that you wish you didn't, especially when you experience God's presence. You're like, I just wish I didn't. Why do I wrestle with these things? And David's saying, know me, search me in the deepest way. Lead me in the way everlasting. He's rejoicing in that. And here, I, I actually see that happening with Jesus. Because Jesus, back in John chapter 4, he sent his disciples away, right? I, I don't know about you guys, but if I'm going around with a dude that's you know, performing miracles, he's going to have to send me away before I'm willing to leave him to go get food. Because I'm going to be like, no, no, if, I'm gonna, if you want me to get food, if we need food, you're coming with me. I'm not letting go of you. He's like, no, no, it's, it's good. It's good. It's good that it's needed, in fact, that you go away right now. Because this encounter with this woman at the well is incredibly intimate, right? That's where he meets us. You know, he didn't, there wasn't a band of people around when, when Christ first touched her heart. Maybe there was. I'm not saying, I'm just saying, that first experience with Christ was truly intimate between you and God, right? It wasn't necessary that people be around regardless of whether they were or not. But Jesus, is he's, he's, he's met her where she is in the middle of her mundane life, right? In the middle of the monotony of what she's doing and dreading. And he's met her there and he's done it alone. She's, there's shame. She's kept herself away from the other women. And that's where Jesus has come to her. Jesus has come to all of us, and he does it every day in that same circumstance. He sent his disciples away. Excuse me. It doesn't say that, but it does say, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse 9, Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? The Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Right? And she, she recognizes probably he's a Jew, from his garb, from from the uh, the the sash on his on his robe, and you know that's that's ordered by by the law of the Old Testament. And seeing that he's a man, she probably thinks she knows men, right? I know men. I've been married to five of them. I'm living with another one. They're all the same, 
you know, just like your friends. They probably think they know religion. I've been around religious hypocrites. I know religion. I've seen hypocrisy before. You don't need to invite me to church. But do they know Jesus? Right? Paul says that. Philippians, he doesn't say that. Paul says something to this effect, right? Philippians chapter 3, he says in the beginning of verse 8, it says, Yet indeed I count all these things lost. And that is all the things that he esteemed as to what made him who he was and gave him credibility in society. I count all those things rubbish. In verse 10, he concludes with that I might know him, that I might know him, right? That I might know him and the, excuse me, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings be con being conformed to his death, that he might know him, right? Because that's what Jesus is going to say. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and the one who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water, right? It's all about knowing. And again, this talk of cliches, right? We can make it a cliche. Christianity is a religion, but it's not based on religious works, right? It is based on how you're relating to God. How do you know God? Do you know him as the intimate, loving, merciful father that desires that you don't? Because you hear people say, like, why do I got to pray to God? He already knows everything. He already knows what I need. He already knows what I want. I don't got to ask him. But we don't, we don't force presumption on God. We're not presumptuous like that. We ought not to be. We ought to pray in faith. We ought to pray in humility. And that's how we, that's how we relate to God. And, and he's saying, if you just knew, and of course, this issue arises in, the other, in other places in the gospel. He says it to other religious leaders. If, if, well, if you knew the word, have you never read? If you knew the power of God, have, have, hasn't the word testified to you about what God can do? He's, he's confronting that all the time. If only you knew, if only you read, if only your eyes were actually open, right, to this incredibly religious environment, they're saying, What? Right, and this woman, I'm assuming, you're just. Oh. I've been called in my glory days. I've been accused of thinking that I am God's gift to humanity. Right? You guys know the phrase. You guys know the saying. Oh, here's Oliver. He's God's gift to humanity, right there. Right? Well, this is truly God's gift to humanity. This is Jesus Christ come in the flesh, right? To suffer and die in our place so that we can have assurance of resurrection, right? So that we can, we can have life and fellowship with God, right? This is, this is truly God's gift to humanity. And, you know, this is, this is what, crazily enough, this is what Paul wants to know. He wants to know the fellowship of his sufferings. He wants to be conformed into his to his image so that he might attain to the resurrection, right? He wants to know him in a deep, intimate way. And this woman, she's struggling through this. Who are you, a Jew, talking to me, a Samaritan woman, right? She's not pushing him away, but she's like, she's got, she's seriously apprehensive. I've dealt with men, right? But again, it comes back to, have you dealt with Jesus? Have you let Jesus, I shouldn't say it like that. It's almost sacrilegious. Have you let Jesus deal with you, right? Have, have, you, have you surrendered yourself? Because Jesus says, um, 
Oh, I hope I find it. I didn't make a note. Um, 8.32, and John says, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know truth, and the truth shall make you free. Right? He's not like, hey, try me out. Just give me a chance, man. Jesus is saying, recognize who I am. Keep my word. I'm going to manifest myself to you. He says something like this again. And John, I think it's John 14, 21. He says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. How great a promise is that? But that starts with humility. That starts with you recognizing who Christ is and abiding in his word, keeping his commandments. And Jesus says, I'm going to man, the promise is I'm going to manifest myself. And of course, Jesus is going to manifest himself to you. You guys don't want me to manifest myself to you. You want Jesus to manifest himself through me to you. You'd like that, not me. But the, um, that's, that's where this starts. It starts with receiving the confrontational message of Christ and what he's come to do. And it's, it's not really to overthrow a human system or a government. It's to overthrow a human will. And it's yours. It's mine. That's where he's meeting you. Hey, I'm here. If you knew the gift of God, you'd ask me for living water, and I'd give it to you. And of course, then she responds. Woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well's deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. She knows that because she's been back over and over again. Of course, there's, there's a play on words here, right? Because what, what they understood in the culture was that living water was a, an incredibly valuable resource. The stagnant, well, the stagnant water built that gathered up in cisterns, you know, Middle East, uh, not much rainfall, you know, you, you're praying to the gods when the rain does come, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's huge when you get, when you get rain. Um, so, but the issue you run into is, is, is wanting a cup of water, and when you draw it out, it's not filled with, you know, plants and animals and dirt. You like to scoop it up and have it be crystal clear. Like, that's a good day. You know, a nice clear cup of water. And I'm, I'm for whatever reason, picturing a styrofoam cup in my hand. But of course, they're not, they're not drinking out of styrofoam cups. But you get what I'm saying. Living water is, is a, it's a hot commodity. And Jesus is promising that that's what I'm promising you. I'm promising you that something that's going to bring you life. And it's not going to poison you. I'm not, I'm not a parasite. I'm living water. I'm clean. I'm pure. Right. This is what people want in that culture. And when she's saying, but how, how are you going to get that? Where are you going to get that? You don't even have something to draw with. And Jesus, he answered, said to her, but whoever drinks of this water thirsts again. Right. Because she's she's esteeming the well in her mind. She's esteeming who set up the well, who's drank from the well, who's fed his livestock. There, there's, you know, he's got a name. He's who are you? Right. And Jesus simply he cuts to the point. He says, yeah, well, you keep coming back here. And I'm promising you something that's going to quench your thirst. Verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. 
but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. She's still missing the point, right? But the promise is there. Jesus is offering in the middle of her depravity and her complete lack of righteousness, right? For this ungodly woman, and we're all ungodly. Nicodemus was just as ungodly as she was apart from Christ. But he's offering to step into that circumstance. He's offering to offer her something where she recognized this is my purpose in life. This is what I live for. This is what my story is all about. And I say, my story, this is what your story is all about. This is what your neighbor's story is all about, right? God stepped into my world midwinter 2012. And I, I mean, I've said it again and again, but I was at a place I was so low. I can't even, can't even put into words the way I felt. I can't, it's like, there's few people I've actually, like, anyway. The point, the story is about Jesus. What I recognized from my pig slop was that if there was any man that was willing to invest in me, I, like the prodigal son, would, I'd, I'd be a servant in his house, right? I'd be willing to be the servant. But Jesus comes and he offers more than just a little investment. He offers fulfillment. And that's where we're at. Every day you got to make that decision. We're not going to get to the end of the chapter. But that's what he offered me. That's what he offered you when he stepped into your life. That's what he offers us every day, whether it's, you know, it's only five years after we got saved, five minutes after you got saved, or 50 years after you got saved. The issue is Jesus is, he's here, he's constant, he's ever-present, and he's willing to step in. And the invitation isn't isolated to this woman. It's not simply to her. If you turn to John 7, I think I had a, that's not John 7. If you turn to John 7, verse 37, it says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Right? There's the offer. We got the prototype, and it certainly made an example. It showed us, you know, Jesus cares about everybody. You know, he's, He's just as concerned with the prostitute in the red light district as he is with the man who, you know, has, you know, he hasn't done that many bad things in life. You know, everyone needs Christ just as bad. Anyway, what Jesus says is if anyone thirsts, he's calling you. He called me. He's calling me every day. He who believes, excuse me, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Right? <laughs> Amen. But he, he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. But this promise was as good as, I mean, as good as anything you could ever expect to receive in history. Because Jesus, he knew what he came for. He knew, he, he knew how it was going to come to pass. He willingly laid down his own will to, 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 uh, to accomplish it on our behalf. And 
as as we already read later, right? Jesus was in, in verse 32, he, he reveals to us that he's being sustained. And it's not by the bread that they're bringing back for him to eat. But it's by pouring himself out. By pouring himself out to accomplish his father's will. And here where it says in verse uh, in, in chapter 7, verse 37 and 38, that same thing can happen with us, right? Jesus wants to fill you up. But he doesn't want you to just bottle it all up and screw the cap on real tight. And I'm going to keep this to myself. No, he says, out of you, right? Out of his heart, you're going to flow torrents of living water on the people around you. You're going to bring life to dead, dry ground around you. And that's you're going to be filled by that. You're going to be filled by him. You're going to be poured out by him. You're going to accomplish good works in his name. You're going to be you're going to be rewarded for the things that you do. Your Father in Heaven is going to be glorified. You're going to be satisfied. How much better a deal can you get? You don't need anything. You don't need material things. You don't need a car. You can have a car. You, not, you guys know what I'm saying. But you don't need it. This was needed. That Jesus Christ would come. That he would relate. That the Word became flesh. And we beheld his glory. Right? That's what was needed. And you can share in that very life. You can share in the life and the joy and the fulfillment, right? That Christ, Jesus, he's offering us by grace. That's the only, that's the only response. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful. What else can we say? We know we're not deserving. We thank you for what you've done. Lord, let us, give us the courage to respond appropriately, to live and die for you, to die every day. Father, to be filled so that we can pour ourselves out for our kids, so that we can pour ourselves out for our spouse. We can pour ourselves out for our friends, for our neighbor, our employer. Father, because the promise is that you are going to fill us. We don't have to worry about the pat on the back being our reward because you're our reward. So many men have come before us, so many women. They've, they've been accepted by you. Lord, I've heard the name Rahab whispered, the harlot. She was accepted by you and she found her fulfillment and she found her place in the lineage of Jesus Christ, Father. Build us up. Make us into a living monument for your name. When people look at us, don't allow them, please don't allow us to get in the way of seeing the glory of your son shine through our character. Father, help us trust in you more. Help us die every day. Live for you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.